You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son, and the people who were present with him, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, toward the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is episode 731 of this podcast. And today is Monday, October 9th, 2023. That was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we're already in trouble. We're already in trouble with King Saul. And he does this thing where he behaves presumptuously. He was apparently commanded to wait for Samuel by God. It wasn't just Samuel said, hey, wait for me. It was God wanted Saul to wait for Samuel. And Saul got anxious. He got fidgety. And he went ahead and he did the thing that Samuel was supposed to do, which is to say that Saul did not recognize the distinction between himself as a king and Samuel as a judge and prophet over Israel. So he offers this burnt offering. And when he is concluded just as he is finishing up. Here comes Samuel. Saul has performed the ritual. He has offered the burnt offering. He knows how to do it, but he's not supposed to be the guy who does it. And Samuel takes him to task, demanding an explanation and then delivering a verdict that the kingdom is going to be taken away from Saul. Now, what's curious about this is that this seems like a relatively minor thing, but it's not, actually. It's a pretty big deal that Saul would think he can just roll up all of these roles into himself because he's king. His behaving presumptuously here and not obeying God is the beginning of the end of Saul, but it's not right away that the kingdom is taken away from him. This is the beginning of the end for Saul being king. And it happens pretty quickly, pretty soon into his reign. He doesn't have a long reign before this verdict is delivered from Samuel. It says at the top of chapter 13, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, he chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people were sent home, every man to his tent. Well, then the Philistines find out about this business of Jonathan defeating a garrison of the Philistines at Geba. Philistines hear about it, and they are not happy, and they gather together. They muster their troops, and they're going to make war. And the people of Israel do not appear to be prepared They do not appear well-suited for a war with the Philistines. They, on the Philistine side of things, muster 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. But even just the number of chariots, the number of horsemen, and also at the last, at the end of chapter 13, this admission that Israel doesn't have spears, or swords. Saul and Jonathan have spears and swords, but the rest of Israel, they don't have spears and swords. And why is that? Well, interestingly, the Philistines, as they had ruled over the Hebrews for a while, they had ruled over the Israelites for a while and didn't want the Israelites rising up and being able to throw off their oppressors, the Philistines. The Philistines didn't allow for blacksmiths throughout the land of Israel. If you were an Israelite and you wanted your farm implements or your wood chopping axe, 
if you wanted that stuff sharpened, you had to go to the Philistines to get those things sharpened. This is kind of like gun control, actually. This is the equivalent of gun control back in that day. They didn't have firearms necessarily, but swords and spears were kind of a big deal. If you had really good quality swords and spears, then you could outfit your soldiers to either defend your country or to make war aggressively against neighboring countries. If you didn't have swords and shields, it was like not having firearms would be today. You don't have firearms and you are a sitting duck. You are easy pickings for people who do have firearms. But the Philistines enacting something like gun control on the Israelites, but Saul and Jonathan somehow having a sword and a spear when nobody else does, that's very interesting. It's very, very curious. Now, it doesn't say in 1 Samuel chapter 13 what the Israelites were going to fight with in the way of weapons. Otherwise, maybe just farm tools, maybe just all of the things that they did have on hand for doing the farming and the chopping of wood. Maybe they came out with axes and sickles and plowshares and they just fashioned makeshift weapons. It doesn't say here, but it is curious that the Philistines, as part of their oppressing of Israel, knowing what was up, did not want the Israelites to be armed. And of course, this goes without saying. It's an obvious thing. When you want to abuse and molest and oppress a people, when you want them to be easy prey at all times and not be able to tell you no, really, truly, or stop you when you're taking their stuff or you're maybe molesting their women, if you want to be able to have your way with the people, you take away their weapons. You take away their ability, their capacity to tell you that no means no. And that's what the Philistines did with the Israelites. And yet here we are, and the Israelites are trembling. They're very afraid, and not for no reason. There's a lot of built-up, accumulated fear of the Philistines. For all the same reasons that the Philistines would, one, be able to make sure that the Israelites didn't have blacksmiths and didn't have swords and spears, and for all the reasons that the Philistines wanted the Israelites to not have those things, these Israelites, when they know that the Philistines are coming out with this huge military force to punish and to subdue the Israelites, the Israelites take it seriously. They are very concerned. And that's part of the reason for us all being anxious and antsy and just doing the thing, even though it was supposed to be Samuel's job. Saul overstepped himself, but that's no excuse. You might say, oh, well, there was so much going on. I mean, surely we can cut Saul a little bit of slack here, right? There was so much to be afraid of. And I understand, yeah, he shouldn't have done that. But, you know, what's the big deal? He was worried about the people. It was out of love for the people. No, no excuse. Love for God comes first. Obeying God's commandment comes first. If you really love the people, you need to have the kind of love for them that is according to your love for God, which is obedient towards God. Saul does not have an obedient heart. He does what seems right in his own eyes. So he's somewhat of a continuation, even though there is a king in Israel now, he's somewhat a continuation of the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Here we have a king in Israel, and so the people are following after Saul, but the king doing what's right in his own eyes is not much better than every man doing what is right in his own eyes. This is a point that Samuel Rutherford 
makes at length in Lex Rex. 1644, Scott's Presbyterian minister writing against, at length, the divine right of kings, political theology, which said that because God makes the king, the king basically is the law. Whatever the king says, that is the law, and you do whatever the king says to do. No questions asked. Well, wait a second. Wait a second, Samuel Rutherford says. Consider how God made Saul a king, and then God unmade Saul a king. Why? Because Saul disobeyed God, which is to say that Saul was under the law, not above the law. He behaved as if he was above the law on several occasions. He was not above the law. Saul apparently believed in the divine right of kings, but he had another thing coming. It's important for us to know that and to recognize it when it comes to how we relate to those who are in, yes, even legitimate positions of authority and under different circumstances, perhaps it would be lawful for them to be requiring what they're requiring, forbidding what they're forbidding, mandating and regulating what they're mandating and regulating. But it's not necessarily to be assumed that just because they have authority and they tell you to do something or to not do something, that that is your responsibility. Unquestioningly, just do whatever they tell you to do. I would say from my studying of it, from my reading of Samuel Rutherford, when he says God makes kings and he unmakes kings, God uses the people to raise up kings and also uses the people to bring them low. When Samuel Rutherford writes that, the big test here, and we find it again and again in various forms throughout scripture, the big test is whether the command of the king coincides with and is in harmony with the commands of God. When the answer is no, then the hierarchy of submission to authority requires that you obey God rather than men. You don't prefer obeying the king as if the king is your gateway to being able to obey God. If you can't do both, you obey God. In this case, we see something as seemingly trivial as Saul not waiting for Samuel and performing this ritual, offering the burnt offering himself. Even something as trivial as that is sufficient for him to be removed from the kingship. Why? Because he's doing it in front of everybody. He's doing it and everybody is looking and seeing this. He is leading the whole nation in his sin, in his disobedience. And you say, well, what's the big sin? Offering a burnt offering to God, that's not a sin. It is a sin if God said to wait. If God said, you're not supposed to be the one offering the burnt offering, Samuel's supposed to be the one offering the burnt offering, it is a sin. And that's the big deal. That is the crux of the matter. If you're not supposed to be because God told you not to do it, well, then that's all there is. Don't do it. And if some human authority says, oh, you will do it, you must do it, do it right now, you say, we must obey God rather than men. And if God said to not do it, if God said to do it, that's the distinction. That's the important thing. Now, if God said, obey this person, obey these people, and what they're asking, what they're telling, what they're requiring, what they're forbidding does not conflict, well, then proceed by all means. But then there again, the test is, did God tell you to submit to these people? Are they governing authorities, rightful authorities over you? If they're not, well, then what? Should you submit to somebody who just claims to be an authority and just starts barking orders at you, particularly if they're trying to upend the actual authorities over you? In this episode, we will be exploring that question from a different angle than we have in the past 
in part because yesterday was our third Ecclesia Forum here in Greeley, Colorado, and I did not make it. I was pained very much to not make it, but I I just didn't feel well at all. I was very achy, very tired from helping the Kavanaugh's out, Tim and Julie Kavanaugh, with moving from Brighton, Colorado to their new home in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, It was great. It was really, really great. I don't regret for a moment that we helped them out, but I think maybe I overdid it a little bit and I just didn't feel good. I just did not feel good. I feel a little bit off still today, but better after a good night's sleep. And so I missed, right? I missed (laughs) my own forum with last night's proceedings, but I still have my notes. I have notes because we were planning on having a debate about voting third party or abstaining from voting. When should, is it, but when should, if it is permissible for a Christian to vote third party, even with a candidate who has no statistical, mathematical chance of winning, when is it permissible for a Christian? When is it maybe necessary for a Christian to vote third party according to their conscience? For that matter, when is it permissible? When is it necessary for a Christian to just not vote at all? None of the options can they choose in good conscience. We'll be getting into some of my notes on that as I tell you what I would have said last night at our Ecclesia Forum. But for now, for starters, let's move into some current events and some discussion around what's happening in Israel and some of the more recent updates coming out of this war with Hamas. First up, Daily Wire News reports, as of yesterday, Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall, Republican from Texas, Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, saying in an interview over the weekend that the Taliban is trying to get involved with launching attacks against Israel. I'll play for you cut one of Congressman McCall on CNN being asked about this, giving an interview. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Here with me now is Republican Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall. Thank you for joining me. You uh, have been to this region many times. Have you spoken with anybody there about the attack? What can you tell us? You know, I have. I've been to the Gaza, you know, border uh, many times. Uh, you know, there are tunnels uh, that go into Gaza, Hamas tunnels. Um, and the, uh, you know, the civilians that live there are always <clears throat> terrorized by, you know, balloons that um, have bombs attached to them or, you know, fires. Um, also, uh, they uh, have drones that fly into their homes and, and videotape them. So it's... It's an ongoing uh, struggle for them. And uh, sadly, I just got a text from this beautiful woman who toured us around the kibbutz in, um, in uh, Gaza. Uh, Miss Aza is her name. And her parents were killed yesterday in this massacre. So uh, it's, it's real. It's, just, uh, it's such a tragedy to hear about this. As the secretary said, this is not um, about armies going to war against each other. It's really an act of terrorism and invasion of Israel with terrorists kidnapping children, uh, killing people indiscriminately. Um, And unfortunately, this is going to be a long, drawn-out struggle because they're going to have to go house to house in Gaza, clearing the houses. They can't just indiscriminately bomb, um, you know, the the homes and the buildings in Gaza. No, No question about that. And given what you just said, how worried are you that this is going to become 
a full-blown war, not just in this area, in Gaza and Israel, but in the broader Middle East. In fact, other nations like Hezbollah or even the Taliban might get involved. Well, I, and I've seen indications that the Taliban uh, wants to come to liberate Jerusalem, in their words, um, to fight the Zionists. Uh, it's very concerning. And, you know, uh, Hezbollah to the north, you know, they have 100,000 rockets in Lebanon. And, and so we don't want this to escalate, obviously. Uh, I think that's why the diplomacy is very important right now between Egypt, uh, Jordan, surrounding nations, uh, even talking to the Saudis and Arab nations to try to bring this to an end um, because we don't want to see it escalate. We do know that Iran is behind this. They have financed this every step of the way. And they've trained uh, these terrorists. Uh, this must have been planned for months to strike on the 50th anniversary of Yom Kippur, uh, you know, the war in 1973. Um, and, um, and that's uh, very evident. I'm also concerned about the $6 billion in lifted sanctions that have now gone into Iran. I don't think it uh, played a part in this uh, event, but it certainly could play a part in any future uh, terror activities. Well, you, you heard Secretary Blinken make very clear just on that. I have other follow-ups to some of the things you just revealed. But on the $6 billion in, in frozen money that Iran had that uh, the U.S. is going to unfreeze, it hasn't happened yet, he argued that there are guarantees and it is traceable that it will only be used for humanitarian assistance and that this is something similar, maybe not at this scale, but something similar to what the Trump administration did. Right. If I, you know, if I were doing this, uh, I would send humanitarian aid from South Korea rather than you know, wiring cash to Doha and then trusting the Ayatollah with that cash. We heard from the president of Iran. He's very clear in his words that I'm going to do whatever I want with that money. Uh, I believe his words. Uh, I'm not real sanguine about this so-called, you know, money transfer laundering you know, operation through Doha. Uh, the fidelity of that seems to be be a little uncertain. You know, the JCPOA was half a billion, and this is six billion dollars uh, in exchange for five hostages. That's about a billion dollars per blue passport. Yeah, uh, I'm worried about that kind of money in the hands of the the largest terror sponsor in the world. Okay, and let's just stop right there, and let's process what Representative McCall has said, Congressman. McCall from Texas points out, one, this is about a billion dollars per blue passport, per hostage. For another thing, and this has been a longstanding, very common sense rule that you don't negotiate with terrorists. You don't <laughs> reward the taking of hostages. What happens if you reward the taking of hostages with vast sums of cash? You get more hostages taken. It's just a perverse incentive structure that encourages actually and it rewards bad behavior. Oh, you're going to take hostages and you're going to be terrorists and we'll give you money? Yeah, what do you think they're going to do with the money? They're going to fund future operations. You've created a sustainable business model for terrorism when you do that. Now, this dubious claim from the Biden administration that we give this money and we could trace it and we have assurances that it's only going to be used for humanitarian purposes. Yeah, bunk, right? You're going to trust that people who are chanting death to America, death to Israel, pursuing nuclear weapons that they want to use against 
Israel helping to plan and greenlighting these attacks from Hamas, unprecedented, as it's being said again and again, from Israeli government officials, defense officials. This is an unprecedented attack. This unprecedented attack was greenlit and helped in the planning stage by Iran. We're going to give $6 billion back to Iran. This claim is spurious and ridiculous on its face. It doesn't pass even the most basic of credibility tests. How would it be? Let's just go back to previous conflicts that America has been involved in in recent decades in the last century, let's say, the 20th century. How would it have been if in the midst of the conflict in World War I, we had given billions and billions of dollars equivalent adjusted for inflation in money, even if it had been the rightful property of Germany prior to World War I starting up and being underway? How would it have been if we had given billions of dollars to Germany and just handed it over? It was in our possession. We had seized it. We had confiscated it. And we gave that billions of dollars back to Germany during World War I. What do you think Germany would have used that money for? Would they have just kept it in reserve, used it for only other things? Well, <laughs> even if they had, there's the, the little tell. They would have taken the money that otherwise would have gone in their budget to those other things, and then they would have used that money. It's all the same, right? It goes into one big pot. If the pot belongs to people who are behaving in a hostile way towards your allies or towards you, you don't give that money over. In the case of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 13, none of the men of Israel except for Saul and Jonathan, his son, have swords or spears. And what do they do when they need their farm implements sharpened? They go to the Philistines. And the Philistines have blacksmiths, but the Philistines don't allow the Israelites to have blacksmiths because they're afraid about, obviously, the Philistines having to deal with weapons that the Israelites would use to defend themselves. Well, in the absence of actual legitimate swords and spears, what are the Israelites going to use? They're going to use whatever is sharp and blunt, whatever can be wielded against a human body effectively as a weapon. They're going to use all of their farm implements. They're going to use axes that they would other use, uh, otherwise use to chop down trees. They're going to use them to chop down Philistines. Well, so also... You know, in my own home economy, just think about My Tech High, which I've talked about before. It's a great program here in the state of Colorado and some other states as well around the U.S. My Tech High funds various STEM resources and equipment, technologies, and curriculum that we use with homeschooling our children. My wife was just last night actually adding up all of our internet bills to submit those for reimbursement for the last several months. To get those submitted, we'll get reimbursed, and then what, right? What will we use the reimbursed money for? We can use it for anything. Now, you're not supposed to submit for reimbursement or direct order any religious materials, for instance. For example, if you wanted a Bible curriculum, you can't get it paid for with MyTechHi funds. But here's the thing. If you were already going to have uh, an internet bill, and now they've reimbursed you for your internet bills because, okay, we need to have good access to internet in order to do the STEM thing and to have our kids taking online classes or researching how to build a computer or 
figuring out electronics or whatever, fill in the blank. Well, now that we have the money back from our internet bills being reimbursed, we can use that money that's been reimbursed to buy a Bible curriculum. We can buy really anything. We could buy a game console, even though you can't submit a game console for reimbursement under MyTechHi. We could take the money that is reimbursed for other things, and we could use that to buy a video game console. That's the same principle at work here. If we're releasing $6 billion to Iran, and they say, oh, we're not going to use it for terrorism, whatever they're going to use it for instead that they would otherwise need it to be used for, that they aren't spending their money on as it is because they're putting so much of their money into their military, building up a military, developing nuclear weapons, whatever they were otherwise going to spend their money on to provide for their people, now they just reallocate those funds to continuing to build up their military, continuing to support financially and logistically Hamas as Hamas is making war on Israel. So what it ends up being is, yeah, okay, sure, you're not directly giving that money to Hamas as Hamas is firing rockets into Israel or as Hamas is paragliding into a music festival for peace, killing 250 plus people who had gathered together for this music festival from all over the world, including America, including Germany, including other countries in the West. Yes, you're not giving the money directly to Hamas, but you might as well be. You you might as well be. And we understand that. And we need to understand that. If it's not clear how foolish and ridiculous it would be to think otherwise, let's give another example. World War II. How would it have been if in the midst of our providing material support to the UK, to the United Kingdom, Great Britain, Germany under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis had said, hey, America, you have uh, $6 billion worth of gold that was seized at one of your ports and we'd like to have that money back. If we had said, hey, okay, yeah, you know, good point. It is your money. It would have been the height of folly because what we were going to do in due time is launch uh, the biggest invasion, the, the biggest sea to land invasion in world history. And we were going to take all of Germany. We were going to conquer all of Germany and conquer Nazi Germany so that they wouldn't be able to uh, continue harassing our allies and threatening us and gassing Jews, right? So, so it's obvious. Even if you said, okay, yeah, Germany insists they're only going to use this money to pay for food because they're running out of food with having spread themselves too thin, it would be ridiculous to give them the money even as we're making war on them, even as we're in a state of war. Israel has now declared war on Hamas. And this is the first time that Israel has declared war in 50 years. This is the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, 1973. Not for no reason was this attack launched on the 50-year anniversary. Not for no reason are Palestinians and Arabs all over the Western world celebrating in American city streets, celebrating in European city streets. Not for no reason are they holding signs that give the exact date that the Yom Kippur, the Six-Day War, was launched back in 1973 and the day after when this attack by Hamas was launched on Israel. Not for no reason. This is symbolic. But just like it's symbolic for them to be 
launching this reprisal attack to destroy the modern state of Israel, to kill as many Jews as they can or take them hostage because it's about a, a, the going price, the going rate is about a billion dollars a hostage. Man, you (laughs) gather up a a thousand hostages and you've just made yourself a trillionaire. Wow, that's amazing. What are you going to do with your trillion dollars, Hamas? It's not that complicated. The Biden administration is continuing policies that previous Democrat administrations have undertaken. It is consistently again and again over the last century, Democrats who snatch victory from the jaws of defeat for our enemies. It is our conflict to lose when we have such a giant military, such a dominant military. It's our conflict to lose. And the Democrats are the ones who like to tell Israel, stand down. And they think, oh, okay, you know, just like Republican administrations may say, okay, we're going to provide a deterrence, right? Peace through strength, the old Reagan line that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, ultimately because it was put into action. We built up our ability to knock down their nuclear missiles, any that would be launched at us, and then forced them into uh, a unsustainable military buildup that they couldn't afford, and they collapsed. Just like Reagan would say peace through strength is a deterrence to the aggression of the Soviet Union, just like Republicans would say we're going to build up Israel, build up our own military, build up our allies to deter aggression from our enemies. The Democrats have the equal and opposite mentality when it comes to arming and equipping and giving aid to our enemies. Here, here's a whole bunch of money. Here are our assurances that we're going to fight with one hand tied behind our back because supposedly that's going to demonstrate good faith. All it really demonstrates as this situation in Israel is demonstrating as the fall of Afghanistan demonstrates, all it really shows is that weakness invites predation. Peace through strength only works if you actually want peace. You give all the strength to an enemy and what are they going to do? They're going to attack. They're going to attack, particularly if you've weakened your allies, if you've strengthened your enemies, they're going to attack. And that's exactly what's happened here. That's exactly what's happened. Also very concerning is as they're discussing, as they're talking back and forth here on CNN, as Congressman McCall explains, yes, there are some rumors that Hezbollah has considered, there's concern that Hezbollah might enter into the conflict with Israel. They might attack Israel as Israel is dealing with Hamas and trying to root out Hamas. There's some concern that the Taliban may send fighters into this conflict to carry out attacks against Israel. They may join the fray. What's concerning about that is with the way that the Biden administration absolutely bungled the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban now has military hardware, and we're talking vehicles, we're talking weapons, we're talking ammunition, we're talking advanced military technology, the best in the world that previously belonged to the United States of America. That all now is the Taliban's. And so they're not the old Taliban that was riding around on donkeys necessarily when we countered the attacks of 9-11. 22 years ago. They're not that Taliban still fighting with weapons that they took from 
dead Soviets back in the 80s. No, this Taliban now has better tech. They now have the most up-to-date modern military hardware. And if they're entering the fight against Israel, then basically the Biden administration, through bungling, has equipped both Hamas and the Taliban to fight against Israel. And they can claim that it's incompetence, but at a certain point, it's criminal. It's criminal incompetence on the part of the Biden administration. And it can't just be called incompetence when we're talking about giving money. We're actually talking about $6 billion being given to Iran. And what? <laughs> what's the good behavior that we are going to get when this has been greenlit and Iran helped to plan the attack by Hamas? There is a real concern, not just that Hezbollah or the Taliban gets involved, but there's a real concern that this turns into a larger conflict, an out-and-out war between Israel and Iran. This stops being that Iran just stokes the fire and it becomes Israel making good on threats that they're going to strike the leadership of Iran if it turns out, as it has, that Iran approved of this, Iran helped this to come into being. If Israel strikes Iran's leadership, well, then what? Now, for a bit of good news, kind of, sort of, maybe there's at least a silver lining. Biden's approval rating is the lowest it's been in a year. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee posted this, oh, by the way, the day before yesterday. His approval ratings average now sits at just over 40%, which is still shockingly high, to be honest. But it's the lowest it's been in a year. Here's a quote from RCP. The last time Biden's approval rating was this low in an RCP poll was August 17th, 2022. Since August 2022, Biden's approval rating has not sunk below 41%, which occurred in December 2022. According to RCP, before August 2022, the president's approval rating hit a year low of 37.1% on July 22nd, 2022. 37% is not much above a third. A third of the country is saying, yeah, I think he's doing a pretty good job. We are just three points above that right now. But that's still much lower than any president who wants to have a chance of getting reelected would ever want their polling numbers to be. Not for no reason. Not for no reason. This whole touting of Bidenomics, we're not buying it. It's a disaster right now. The economy is doing very poorly when we can't afford to eat or drive or even get a house. Something's wrong. If you look on the foreign affairs scene and you see what's going on in Israel, you see what's going on in the Ukraine, you see what happened with Afghanistan, you see what is very liable to happen over Taiwan. Right now, it's just one dumpster fire after another with Joe Biden, and he's clearly not in charge. He's clearly a figurehead. He's not actually in charge. He is the guy that people recognize the face of. And the people who are actually running the show are making a terrible mess of things. And most of us see it. Some of us, uh, <laughs> I don't understand how, some of us still don't see it. Some of us are still getting our news from the corporate news media and are not getting much news, apparently, even. Because increasingly, I think the corporate news media is beginning to ask questions and they're beginning to realize, hey, this is not going so good. So if they ask a question of Biden and Biden says, you know, I understand bad news travels farther and, you know, you guys 
what negative news. But listen, no, they have been trying to spin. There's only so much lipstick you can put on the pig. At a certain point, people just say, hey, this is a pig, right? This is a pig, and the lipstick is not sticking to the mud on the pig because the pig just keeps rolling in the mud. This is a pig. It's a pig. It's a pig. It's a pig. Let's just ask you the question, and maybe just possibly we can salvage our own credibility because here's the thing. The worse the Biden administration does domestically and with regards to foreign affairs, the more censure, the more ridicule the Biden administration earns from Americans and from our allies, the more contempt shown openly by our enemies around the world for this administration, the more the corporate news media has every reason to worry that as soon as Biden is out of the picture, their credibility, their viewership, their business model will be forever gone. Gone with Biden. If they're putting their eggs in the basket of trying to prop up the Biden administration, it's a it's a sinking ship. It's a it's a sinking ship. Maybe he goes down with the ship. They don't want to go down with the ship. Increasingly, you're seeing them veer away. But still, not enough, right? Not enough are they admitting that, hey, this is a disaster. This is a disaster for us as Americans. We are less free. We are less prosperous. So are our allies. We are less safe around the world with Biden in the White House, with his team in charge. That's kind of a good sign. It's not good that we have to have all these things happening in order to convince us that he has bad ideas and he's not a credible person and he's not somebody you should even have as a figurehead, much less the person empowering other people who have no idea what they're doing. It's not good, the circumstances by which we come to realize our folly here, so many of us, but it is good that maybe a certain percentage of Americans is agreeing that, hey, this is not going so good. This is not going so good and we don't approve. He's not doing a good job. That's a fact. He's not doing a good job. But here's the thing, right? Here's the other side of the equation. If Republicans don't present a viable alternative, then all Biden has to do, all his spokespeople have to do, and this is all they do at the end of the day, is try and shift the blame to Republicans. Ah, you think Biden's incompetent. You think the Biden administration is doing a bad job. It's all the Republicans' fault, right? Blame the Republicans. Hate those guys. It's actually all their fault. Or if that doesn't work, you say, okay, however bad you think Biden is, however bad you think his job of handling the economy and foreign affairs and national security and securing the southern border is the Republicans are worse, right? It's just a bad hand, right? We've been dealt a bad hand, but the Republicans dealt it, right? (laughs) They're the ones who smelt it. They're the ones who dealt it. About that, consider some reporting from a week ago from Ryan Saavedra, over at the Daily Wire, Garrett Graves unloads on Matt Gates for fundraising off effort to remove McCarthy. Here's a quote. It's disgusting. I'll play for you cut two, and you can listen to Congressman Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana, on the House floor giving a speech about this. I'll go ahead and play the audio for you because this helps to make the larger point about whether Christians should ever vote third party or abstain from voting if they don't like the Republican or the Democrat who's running. Here it is, cut to, take a listen, and then I'll explain. For two minutes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I want to thank Jim from Oklahoma for yielding. Mr. Speaker, we've been here for eight months with one of the tightest majorities in modern history. Yet look at the accomplishments of this majority, this conservative majority, 
with the majority of Republicans voting for the strongest border security in my lifetime, fighting against this incomprehensible energy policy that's driving up energy costs 40 percent, utility and gasoline payments, pushing Americans into energy poverty. We passed legislation to unleash America's energy resources, pushing back this administration's brainless policies on, on energy. We've passed legislation to pull back, to stop spending $4.8 trillion. Then I want to make note, my friends that are carrying this motion to vacate opposed. We've, we've passed legislation to streamline regulations, permitting environmental laws for the first time in 40 years. Again, my friends here opposed. We strengthened work requirements for welfare to get people back into the workforce. Again, my friends over here opposed. I keep wondering, what is going on? Are we redefining what conservative is? What's going on in this country today? What's going on in this body? We have Freedom Works Heritage, Chip Roy and Jim Jordan say something's conservative, and these folks say it's not, and they're right. And all of a sudden, my phone keeps sending text messages. Text messages saying, hey, give me money. Oh, look at that. Oh, look, give me money. I filed the motion to vacate. Using official actions, official actions to raise money. It's disgusting. It's what's disgusting about Washington. Mr. Speaker, we've watched as these folks right here that have brought up this motion to vacate have refused to pay our military service members. Refused to pay them. I want to quote my delegation member, my senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy. If we're not going to pay our service members, if, we're, if they're not going to be there to protect us, next time someone invades America, call a crackhead. Let me know how that works out for you. Yield the gentleman another 30 seconds. The gentleman is recognized for an additional 30 seconds. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I've heard people talk about bad faith here. I've heard them make reference to this January agreement. My friends from Arizona, Virginia, and Florida. Let me be crystal clear. Not a single one of them were in the room. You know what? You know what? The speaker didn't, didn't meet the targets of that January agreement. He exceeded them. The greatest savings in American history. The greatest savings in American history. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, this isn't about fundraising. This is about our country. It's about our children and our grandchildren. We need to stand behind the seconds. We need to stand behind the greatest speaker in modern history that has delivered the best conservative wins for this country. I yield back. And that was a very passionate speech, very full of emotion, very robust, very meaningful. But do you know what most Americans hear? I think when they tune into that, this is what they hear. Yes. Okay. There you go. Loud noises. I don't know what you. I don't know what we're yelling about. I. I, I just, <laughs> all I know is that there's a strong emotion. You're very upset. I get that. Okay. And what? And what? Lots of emotion from the same congressman, GOP lawmaker Garrett Graves from Louisiana. I'll be candid. <laughs> For anyhow, let's go ahead and play a calmer, but on the same note, Garrett Graves speaking with CNN about this 
current situation with the House speakership and why they had to recess. Here's cut three. Take a listen. Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana, for the record, he voted to keep McCarthy as speaker yesterday. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, When asked last night if your party can decide on a leader by next week, you said, hell no. Do you still feel that way now? Because your party, my understanding, is scheduled to vote a week from today. Uh, the, the party is scheduled to vote, and I think that, that what's going on right now is that uh, I think people are going home, letting tempers decompress a little bit, coming back together starting on Tuesday, going to do a candidate forum and have people that are interested in the speaker's role uh, talking about their candidacy and what they want to do, and then ideally a vote's on Wednesday. But I want to remind you, Jake, going back to January, uh, even without all the sore wounds then, it took 15 votes to finally elect a speaker of the House. I think you have more raw motions at this point, and quite Frankly, I'm not sure why anybody would even want the speakership right now and that the, the, the position really lacks stability. Who do you think should be speaker? I mean, your fellow Louisiana and uh, Steve Scalise obviously uh, is, is running. Um, yeah. and, and who do you think the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy might support? Uh, look, I, I think that, uh, you know, some interesting dynamic is anyone who they come out in support of, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to cause a lot of other Republicans to, uh, to, to, to really have a distaste for. And so it's a very interesting dynamic that we're seeing right now. Look, there are a lot of good people who have thrown their name in the, in the ring, but I've been very clear that we're not going to make a commitment right now. Obviously, uh, you know, any, any speaker from Louisiana would be, uh, would be fantastic, but I want to be clear, we're not going to make any commitments right now at all. And here's why. I think one of the first things you've got to do is you've got to actually establish stability to the position. The fact that any one person can come out and can effectively cause this motion to vacate is totally inappropriate. Jake, you know this. This is third in line to President of the United States. We don't need to have the kind of chaos and instability that we saw yesterday. So you need, as a, as a pledge to get your support, somebody who says... We, can't, we I got to get rid. We got to get rid as a conference. We have to get rid of this one person motion to vacate because it makes everything unstable. I think what would make sense is two different things before we even get into the speaker's race. Number one, within the Republican conference, there's a rule already that Matt Gate violated yesterday that prohibits any one person from bringing up a motion to vacate. The problem is, is the rule doesn't have any penalty or enforcement action. Secondly, I think the conference should come together and change the House rules to raise the threshold on a motion to vacate above just one. I mean, think about this. Again, third in line to the President of the United States. We don't subject the President or the Vice President to that type of low threshold. The United United States needs to have more stability than we saw yesterday. Do you agree with uh, Congressman McHenry's decision, he's the the temporary speaker, the Speaker Pro Tem, to put a pause on the week to let tensions uh, settle? Uh, Jake, I'll be really candid. I think if we had stayed together uh, in the meeting last night, I I think that you would have seen fists thrown, and I'm not being dramatic when I say that. There is a lot of raw emotions right now. I think it was best to let folks go back home, decompress a little bit, and then come back together. You were yourself pretty passionate on the floor yesterday expressing some of your disgust let's uh, roll a little bit of that clip and we don't need to (laughs) thanks jake tapper we don't need to because we already played that clip before turning to you but this of course is from last week and it feels like old news now with everything going on in israel if you're not a subscriber to my podcast and you're not listening to this until november well then it's going to be really old news. Perhaps lots of things may develop, and that's why we need to talk about things that are still going to be relevant next month and six months from now and a year from now and 10 years from now, which we will get into. 
here shortly. But this actually, regardless of how much happens in the next three weeks, between now and when this is released to the general public, and you can listen to this without paying me 99 cents a month through Spotify for podcasters, what this helps to illustrate is that sometimes none of the options are good options. And a lot of independents in this country are increasingly open to a third party because the Democrats are led by Joe Biden, who is not doing so hot. He's not doing a great job. If I look over at Real Clear Politics, he's got a unfavorability rating of 55.8%. Donald Trump actually leads him by a little bit, 56.5% unfavorability. Ron DeSantis, 49.8%. As much as I like Ron DeSantis, he's just barely under half of people polled saying they don't like him. They're not a fan. Kamala Harris is at 54%. The people who are closest to being president in 2024, from 2024 to 2028, have more unfavorability among Americans than favorability. And to the point that Garrett Graves is making, congressman from Louisiana, Garrett Graves says, hey, this is too much instability. One person can remove the Speaker of the House third in line to the presidency. That's chaos. And actually, interestingly, the speech on the House floor being so high in emotion, the conversation with Jake Tapper being so much more calm, what we need is more of this calm on the House floor. But then, of course, when they're calm speeches, when they're not exciting speeches, when there's not the high drama, to Garrett Graves's point on the House floor, it's not as easy for politicians, perhaps, to raise money. And there's a perverse incentive structure that's rewarding drama for the sake of drama, which is to say that this actually is representative of the American people who've become addicted to the drama. As much as you hate it, as much as everybody <laughs> seemingly, when we're polled, says, ah, oh, yeah, we hate this. We're addicted to hating it. We're addicted to the hate. We're addicted to the anger and the bitterness. And it's not going to get any better until we get ourselves detoxed from the hatred and the animus and the hostility and the gridlock. Being addicted to the gridlock is going to cost lives. It's going to kill people. It's going to represent not just missed opportunities. Yeah, there's all these good things that we could be getting done if we could just be reasonable and listen to each other and be human beings and treat one another with respect. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity that's going to be missed out on. That's for sure. But then there's also a lot of risk. There's a lot of danger. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That was Abraham Lincoln's summation of what was at stake with the Civil War. But that's also a quote from Jesus. That's a quote not from Abraham Lincoln originally. That was Abraham Lincoln quoting Jesus when Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, by the Pharisees, who hate him, by the way, and they also were addicted to the drama, and they also were trying to remove a rival. They were trying to get rid of somebody who was being disruptive to their status quo, their business model. They were finding their norms upset by Jesus and his teaching. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, upending rabbinical tradition and unseating rabbinical tradition, which was not 
teaching with authority. He was teaching, Jesus was, as one with authority. And the people marveled at it because he didn't teach like the Pharisees taught, who were constantly equivocating, well, so-and-so says this and -and so-and-so says this, but how can we really know? Jesus spoke as one with authority. I say unto you, not quoting anybody, not referencing anybody, I reference myself because before Abraham was, I am. And that's why they wanted to kill him, of course. But being the son of God, (laughs) you have the right to say that kind of a thing when it's true. So when Jesus says that house divided against itself cannot stand, he's referring to Satan. If Satan is now giving power to someone to cast out demons, well, then the demonic realm is in chaos. But then what is that also to say? That is to say that when the demonic, when evil gets their poop in a group, when they get it together, they cause all kinds of trouble. And the people who want to restrain evil and who should want to fulfill God's purpose for civil government, which is to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil, to restrain evil as a kind of common grace on the righteous and the wicked alike. When the good is promoted and evil is restrained, you know that those who are in a position of civil authority are also not divided against themselves when the civil authorities in our country are divided against themselves, when even the Republican Party has to take a break for a week, everybody go back home, take a few days, take some deep breaths, repeat after me, woo-saw, woo-saw, <laughs> because otherwise they're going to come to blows. Well, we've got anything but unity of purpose. And as Garrett Graves points out, anybody that these Republicans put forward as somebody that they would like is automatically going to have a certain stigma attached to them. That's how you know that this is a very dysfunctional caucus right now because these Republicans who voted along with the Democrats to oust McCarthy have created so much tension and bad blood with the other Republicans in Congress. Anybody that they put forward and they say, hey, we want this guy, automatically knee-jerk reaction is going to be distasteful to the other Republicans who are, if you'll pardon my French, pissed at this chaos, being unnecessary, gratuitous, without merit, mercenary. So what do you do, right? What do you do when one side hates the other side and the other side hates them right back and it's a dysfunctional mess? What do you do? How do you proceed? Quite simply, how you might proceed is by voting third party. Option A, option B, alien versus predator, whoever wins, we lose. (laughs) Hitler versus Stalin (laughs) kinds of options. You say, okay, I'm going to go for a third. Is there an alternative to the two leading contenders? I'll share with you a Gallup poll over at gallup.com. Jeffrey M. Jones writes October 4th, support for third U.S. political party up up to 63%. Third time support has exceeded 60% along with 2017 and 2021. Republicans primarily behind the increase with 58% now in favor. Political independents remain group most likely to favor third party. And oh, by the way, I am a registered independent, not for no reason, but other party is an option. It is an option, and it's somewhat of a nuclear option. 
because it always runs the risk that the other side that you dislike more is going to win. If a whole bunch of conservatives vote third party, then the concern is that we're just going to keep on getting Democrats. And Democrats who don't especially love the leading contender in the Democrat party worry the exact same thing. They say, oh, if we vote third party, then a Republican is going to win that we like even less than we like the top guy on the ticket for the Democrats. But here's what Jeffrey M. Jones writes for Gallup. 63% of U.S. adults currently agree with the statement that the Republican and Democratic parties do such a poor job of representing the American people that, quote, a third major party is needed, end quote. This represents a seven percentage point increase from a year ago and is the highest since Gallup first asked the question in 2003. However, the current measure is not meaningfully different from the prior highs of 61% in 2017 and 62% in 2021, shortly after the January 2021 Capitol Hill riots. So here they have a graph showing the change over time, starting in 2003 on up to the present, 20 years later. Third party needed percentage, also parties doing adequate job. It's been pretty close, right? It's been pretty close really actually since 2006. At best, the tie has had it. Only about a third right now, and for some time, only about a third of Americans polled agree that the two principal political parties are doing a good job. And maybe this opens the door to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running successfully as a third-party candidate. I doubt it, but maybe. Maybe it opens the door to conservatives who don't find a home in the Republican Party. They find themselves whittled down and unwelcome and excluded from meaningful negotiations every time they push. They're labeled the extremists by both Democrats and moderate Republicans. Maybe conservatives need to have their own political party that's apart from and separate from the Republican Party. Maybe this represents an opportunity. Probably not. Probably a third party would be centrist. Just like I keep going back to all sides to see media coverage, right, left, and center. Maybe just like that, you're going to have a third political party, which is more of an amalgamation, more of the moderates, more of the people who consider themselves independents, and they don't like what is called extreme on the right or the left. They vote more so on the basis of who they like least, not winning. I don't want her to win. I don't want him to win. I'm going to vote this other way. Maybe. But here's the question, right? The big question that our Ecclesia Forum last night was going to address and did address, which I was going to address, I suppose, at our forum last night. The big question is whether a Christian should vote third party or abstain from voting. And let me just give you the very, very short answer. Even if I don't agree that right now that's a good idea, given the circumstances or what I've seen in recent years, recent election cycles, even if I don't agree that it's a good idea, it's definitely permissible unless you can find book, chapter, and verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not vote third party. Thou shalt vote Republican. I'll wait, but while I wait, I'll read for you some of the reasons that as I was thinking about this, I came up with 
for why a Christian might vote third party or abstain from voting if the two leading options, Republican and Democrat, are both alike unpalatable, unacceptable. Reason number one, to avoid showing partiality. James 2, 8 through 9 says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Those who are regarded as viable candidates may be so regarded because of how much money they are able to raise. By extension, this can represent showing partiality to the wealthy because we're going to vote for whoever raised the most money. We're told that they're the most viable candidate. How do we know that they're the most viable? Because the most wealthy people have contributed the most money to them. Look at how much money they've raised. Ah, See, they're going to be able to take out advertising. They're going to be able to hire staff and keep their campaigns running. They're going to be able to throw big events open to the public where people come in and hear what they're proposing, hear them present their case for why they should be elected. Well, insofar as a lot of that is a factor of who the wealthy see as a positive option, a safe option for their business model, for their business interests, their financial interests. You could argue that voting for one of the two principal parties represents voting for whoever the wealthy are favoring and by extension showing partiality towards those who are wealthy. That is not a particularly strong case in my view, but there you go. I think it could be a case. I think it could be a factor in some people's minds. Hey, I don't want to vote for this guy. I think everybody else is voting for him just because he's raised the most money. It's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that he's viable because everybody's saying he's viable. I don't think he's viable because I'm looking at what he's actually proposing. I'm looking at his actual positions on things. I'm listening to what he's actually saying. I don't believe he's saying true things. I think he's saying untrue things that are very damaging. These are lies. I don't want to vote for a liar. He's proposing we do bad things to accomplish supposedly profitable outcomes, but I don't want to be a participant in doing these bad things just because they're going to help the rich stay rich or get even richer still. Consider also Exodus 23, 1 through 3. You might, as a Christian, vote third party or abstain from voting entirely to not fall in with the many to do what is evil. Exodus 23, 1 through 3 says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Insofar as general election campaigning for some time now has seemed to boil down to one leading candidate and party representing themselves as friends to corporate interests and the wealthy, or at least that's what the other side says. The other candidate and party presents themselves as friends to the poor. We should withhold from both our vote, our support, if our vote and our support would be predicated on showing partiality towards the rich or the poor. For that matter, we should not fall in with the many to do evil or to support someone who is arguing for the normalization of evil, since this represents a perversion of justice. In Exodus 23, 1 through 3, you have a pretty firm repudiation of pure democracy. Pure democracy would say, hey, if the majority want to do what is evil, it must not be evil. We know what is good based on what gets the majority of votes. Even if it's just 51%, we're going to fall in with the many to do whatever the many 
think we should do next? Well, that's foolishness. Sometimes what the many want to do is evil. Don't go along with it just because it's popular. That doesn't make it right. Also, just because something's unpopular, that doesn't make it wrong. For that matter, too, and this is another way of stating the same thing, a Christian might vote third party or abstain from voting so as to not go against conscience. Romans 14.23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, here Paul is talking about meat offered to idols, and he says, if you can't eat it in good faith, if it doesn't proceed from faith, you're eating of this meat, don't do it. It would be a sin to you. Your conscience may be weaker or stronger. Eating the meat is not the big thing. Going against your conscience is a big deal, actually. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't vote for either of the two leading parties, either of the two leading candidates from faith, it is a sin for you to do what you're doing just because people pressured you. People said, ah, you have to, you have to. Ah, the majority of us are going to go do it. Come on, come on. You know it's right because we're going to do it. Yeah, but like your mom and dad used to say, if all your friends were going to jump off a cliff, would you do it too? And the answer for far too many people is, yeah. Yeah, if they pressured me to, yeah, I would. No, but that's stupid, right? If all your friends start doing drugs, smoking dope, getting fall down drunk every weekend, are you going to do that too? I hope not. Get better friends. If your friends are pressuring you into doing what violates your conscience, now if they're trying to persuade your conscience and inform your conscience, they're, they're doing that respectfully, politely, with courtesy, with genuine love for you, rejoicing in the truth. That's one thing. Those are good friends. Keep those friends. If genuinely they're promoting what is good and you hadn't considered that point of view or that perspective or that angle. But insofar as Christians may disagree about debatable matters, and we may and we do, that's why they're debatable matters. The principle that Christians should not do anything except what proceeds from faith means they should abstain from voting or they should vote third party. Even if the third party candidate has no statistical mathematical chance of winning, if the Christian cannot vote for either of the two leading candidates in good faith. And I'll give you just a few hypothetical scenarios where I would be very drawn to either abstaining from voting or voting third party. If there's no difference between the Republican and the Democrat candidate on the issue of abortion, then well, what's the point? Why am I here? Why am I voting for one or the other? If there's no difference in their position relative to the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism, or increasingly the molestation of children, the mutilation of children, the perversion of children. If there's no difference, if the Republicans start saying all the same things that the Democrat is saying with slight variations, you lost me. If the Republican says we need to repeal the Second Amendment, we just need to do it in a constitutionally approved way, you lost me. If the Republican starts saying, hey, listen, yeah, this free speech thing, sure, right, but not for you, 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 because you guys are being critical of the Republicans. You're being critical of Democrats. You're disagreeing with how we want to proceed on abortion, on LGBTQ issues, on Second Amendment issues. Why would I vote for you? With Republicans like that, who needs Democrats? And if it's all the same, you just have an R behind your name instead of a D behind your name. You lost me. And I don't think anybody should fault a Christian for saying, hey, when there's no meaningful moral difference between the two leading parties, I'm just going to stay home. Or I'm going to vote for a third-party candidate who actually does represent 
better, most closely, what I believe is good and true and beautiful. For another reason, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A Christian might vote third party or abstain to keep himself unstained from the world. Where the character of a people may become generally corrupt, and this happens, this happens in the Bible, we see this with generations becoming totally corrupt, some generations following after the Lord faithfully and being blessed, other generations becoming completely hell-bent on idolatry, every kind of violence and sexual immorality, perversion, arrogance. When that becomes the mark of a people, of a society, of a culture, of a generation, the majority may favor affirming and normalizing sin in all of its forms And if you only have two options, those two options may amount to two sides of the same coin, normalization of sin. In such a circumstance, a people so oriented, so stubbornly committed to sin and folly will turn away from any candidate, any party who does what is just, loves mercy, walks humbly with God because they love what is evil. They love darkness. They hate the good. They love what is evil. In that kind of a circumstance, a Christian voting third party or else abstaining from voting may be doing the only thing they can to keep themselves unstained from the world, politically, socially, culturally. For a last reason, and these are just the reasons that occurred to me, Proverbs 18.17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There's no two ways about it. Even just the appearance of being independent an objective not loyal to either of the two chief political parties makes it easier to cross-examine both parties and their candidates when factionalism and polarization are at their peak, voting independently of the two leading parties or refusing to vote for either of their candidates in a particular race may lead to opportunities to disagree with all sides equally without being dismissed for doing it just because you want your party to win, you want your candidate to win. Oh, you're just saying that about Biden because you watch too much Fox News, for instance. Oh, you're just saying that about Trump because you watch too much MSNBC. Oh, what? now wait a second, right? Wait a second. What if I told you I don't like Republicans and I don't like Democrats and I don't like MSNBC and I don't like Fox News and I don't want some amalgamation of the two? What if I told you I don't like either of the parties? I don't like either of these options. I think both alike have become corrupt and contentious, and they're doing a very bad job, and we need a fresh option. What if I told you that? You know, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 13 for a moment. At the last, it says, verse 22, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Saul and Jonathan had a spear and had a sword. Nobody else did. Everybody else, what were they armed with? Farm implements. Here's the thing. If you are a soldier in the army of the Israelites here, and you've got chariots coming at you, you've got horsemen coming at you, you've got a huge army of Philistines you're about to do battle with, and your options are a plowshare, a mattock, an axe, a sickle, those are your options, those are your weapons to choose from, well, then you're probably not thrilled, right? You would probably be very open to 
some cache of weapons becoming available that was swords and spears because those are weapons properly, not just tools generally that you can wield as a weapon. In the hands of a willing warrior, anything can be a weapon, but better to have a weapon that is specifically designed for the task. If you have an option other than a plowshare or an axe, a plowshare or a sickle, somebody says, hey, would you like this sword instead? What do you do? You say, yeah, absolutely. Well, what if not everybody gets a sword? Well, at least I'll have a sword. Yeah, but the majority are picking up either plowshares or sickles. Yeah, but you know what? If everybody could pick up a sword right now, wouldn't that be better? I mean, let's take what we can get. That might be the mentality. But either way, if you're independent and somebody says, hey, listen, so-and-so is doing such and such. What do we think of that? Is it good? Is it bad? Should we support it? Should we abstain? Should we jump in? Should we join them? Should we oppose them? If you are neutral or you're independent, you may have a better chance of being able to say, listen, no, let's do this other thing. Whose side are you on if you're Samuel, for instance, to give a different kind of an argument? Whose side are you on, Samuel, when you tell Saul right before this big battle with the Philistines that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him? Whose side are you on anyways? What, are you on the Philistine side? Listen, listen, no, no, no. Samuel is on God's side, for God is always right. Also, to quote Abraham Lincoln, when he was asked during the Civil War whether God was on the side of the Union or on the side of the Confederacy, he said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side or on the side of the South. My concern is that we would be on God's side because God is always right. And that's the role of the prophet. That's the role of God's people. And it doesn't mean that you don't pick a side sometimes. And that's where I think the third party people, some of the third party people who go third party and they are not wanting to pick Republican or Democrat have a temptation and need to double check. They need to look in the mirror and ask themselves whether they're so concerned about conscience or whether they're so concerned about picking a side and having to line up in a battle, taking a risk of people on the other side being upset. Are you concerned about offending God? That's really the decisive question. Is this a concern about... Defending what is true, defending what is right, or is this a concern about offending people on the other side? If you, hey, if I just don't pick a side, well, then either nobody will be upset with me or everybody will be equally upset with me, and they'll be mostly focused on hating each other, and they won't hate me so much. I just I don't do well with rejection. If your reasons are along those lines for voting third party or abstaining from voting, then maybe you shouldn't have such a good conscience about voting third party or abstaining. Maybe actually you should do a gut check. Your problem is not partiality. It is being passive. It's being cowardly. It's being a people pleaser. That being a people pleaser thing can very easily turn into supporting a third option, a third way that's just an amalgamation or not supporting the good thing when the good thing is presented. And I think that's where the Republican Party has lost its way is there have been a lot of people who out of a desire to be relevant, they've given up on principles and they prefer practicality. And anybody who says, no, we have to stand on principle is actually viewed as very unprincipled because if you were really principled, you would be accomplishing practical things. Always round, what's needed is a calm, respectful, cool-headed, 
devotion to what is good and what is true and how God says we should live, how God says we should treat each other. What God says is good is good. What God says is true is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. It's so important that we remember that when it comes time to make decisions together, because that's all politics is. That's all politics is, is making decisions together. If we can't make decisions together, boy, howdy, I guarantee you, our enemies will make decisions together for what to do with us. And they'll do the kinds of things with us that the Philistines did with the Israelites. Yeah, you're not allowed to have blacksmiths. Why? Hmm. Reasons. We have blacksmiths. Yeah, just come to us. Yeah, no, 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 I mean it. No blacksmiths for you. If we see you having a blacksmith in your territory, there will be trouble. We'll have a pre-dawn raid. Yeah. Today, it's you sharpening your axes and your scythes and plowshares. Tomorrow, it's you making swords and spears. No, you, you don't want to go down that road. You come to us. If you need something sharpened, we'll charge you a reasonable rate. Two-thirds of a shekel for plowshares and for the mattocks. A third of a shekel for axes or for setting the goads. Don't worry about it. Is that where we want to be? That's where we will be if we're a divided people. And for that matter too, to say we want a third party will not actually do any good. If we take all of our problems with us into a third party, if there's a viable third party, right? If there is sufficient political will to have a third major political party, and it's not just two, if we haven't changed our mindset and our attitude towards what is good, what is true, if we're not siding with God, if it's not because of wanting to have a good conscience, it's just, hey, we want a third way because we're tired of this drama. Let's have some drama over here. It'll just be a Mexican standoff. Whereas right now, it's two guys facing each other on the dusty street of some Old West town. Every day is a showdown. That's how they raise money. You add a third party into it. If that third party is not predicated on what is true and what is beautiful and what is good, well, now it's just three guys. It's just the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it might not even be the good. (laughs) It might just be three guys pointing pistols at each other and not getting anything accomplished. The key here is whether we're operating from a place of love for God and subsequently an informed love for each other. If that's the big idea, then I would say study Be open to reason. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. Be decent about it. Be honest about it. And do what your conscience would lead you to do. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.